We'll be seated, if you will, open your Bibles to the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 this morning. I've titled this, In Whom Do We Trust? And there are really a lot of different ways you could entitle this psalm. But as we think about the book of Psalms, we need to remember that the 150 psalms that the Holy Spirit has given to us is more than a book of Israel's praise and prayer. The book of Psalms is a cross-section of God's revelation to Israel and of Israel's response in faith to the Lord. The Psalms are songs of praise to God. They are prayers of the people, and they contain laments against the wicked, against those that would be considered the enemies of God. In these Psalms, we see the glory and the majesty of God. We also see the raw emotion of people in great need. And I believe this is one of the reasons why the Psalms are so endearing to our spirits, is because of the raw emotion, the reality of man's need, the sufficiency of God's provision as we struggle to make sense of this life that we live and this world that we live in. So the periods of seeming of despair in the face of unwelcome circumstances are contrasted against faith and hope and God. And that's exactly what we find in Psalm 42 today. For centuries, God's people have turned to the Psalms to find comfort, to find strength, to find encouragement, and to find an obvious reminder of the greatness of God. Now, David is credited with authoring many of the Psalms, but other authors are also mentioned. Twelve were written by the sons of Korah, who were descendants of Koath, who was of the tribe of Levi, and these groups of people served in the temple as musicians. Korah, the sons of Korah, is the one that Psalm 42 is attributed to. And so this gives us an insight into what is in the psalm today. So not only were the sons of Korah given the credit for some of the psalms that were written, 12 were written by Asaph, who was one of David's choir masters, and a descendant of Gershon, the son of Levi. A half dozen or so are attributed to Solomon, Heman the Ezraite, Ethan the Ezraite, and Moses. And some have no inscription of any kind, meaning their authorship is really not known. So the collection of 150 psalms, as we see them in our Bible, is an external structure imposed upon the psalms. The psalms are divided into five books of unequal length. And so in Psalm 42, we actually enter into what scholars and theologians consider to be the second book of the psalms. It is widely believed that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were originally a singular psalm. The earliest manuscripts have them as a single psalm. And we also see within these two psalms in our Bible, repetition within them. So for example, in Psalm 42.9, the psalmist says, Why must I go about mourning oppressed by my enemy, which is repeated in Psalm 43.2 also, The two psalms share a very common refrain, which is, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. This is found in Psalm 42.5, verse 11, and also in Psalm 43.5. So they believe that these two psalms were probably once a singular psalm, and there's also an indication that this is the case, since there is no inscription or subtitle that is a part of Psalm 43. So if the two psalms 
were composed as a single poem or as a single song, then for liturgical reasons, they were separated into two songs after the Bible had been accumulated. Now, while the exact details of the psalm are not known, there are a couple of clues that help us to understand a bit of the framework or the backdrop as to why this psalm was written. You'll notice at the very beginning of Psalm 42 that it is attributed to the sons of Korah, again, who were Levites, and we can assume that this person was regularly involved in the preparation and the presentation of worship in the temple. Verse 4 highlights this conclusion. Now, verse 6 seems to indicate that the writer of this psalm is separated by some distance from Jerusalem based upon the description that he includes here. So his being separated from this privilege of worship, perhaps because of of his being in exile, begins to set the backdrop for what it is we're going to read. The psalmist feels separated. He feels cut off from God because of his circumstances. He's feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling moments of despair, wondering what the outcome of this circumstance is going to be. And so the question is, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt separated from God? Have you ever felt like maybe God has turned His face away from you and seems to be indifferent or even ignorant of the circumstance that you find yourself in? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your circumstance? Have you ever been paralyzed by the uncertainty of what was going to come in the days ahead. Well, this psalm speaks to that very experience, not from a theoretical perspective, but from an experiential one, as this unknown son of Korah writes these words. Follow along in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 11. Here's what God's Word says to us today. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Why they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him 
the help of my countenance and my God. We're going to divide this into three main points as you follow along in your sermon notes. The first point that we look at is his desire. The desire that is expressed from the heart of the psalmist. Here's what came to me as I was thinking about this verse. As I was meditating on the condition of the psalmist, as I reflected on my own life, as I considered the words before me, here's what I realized. Our need for God never, ever changes. But our understanding of our need for God is intensified when we are in difficult circumstances. Isn't that true? Our need for God never, ever changes but our understanding of our need for God is intensified in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So the the desire of the psalmist here is intense. We we see this expressed through verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, I've seen a lot of deer in my day. I haven't traveled through, my back, my, through the back of my house. And even this morning, I saw a deer running through one of the empty expanses of our property. But I've never, ever seen a deer panting. A deer pants when he is in physical distress. A deer pants when his thirst is beyond reason. His thirst is so acute that he has a desperate need for water, and it is visualized through the panting that we might see in a deer, much like a man who would pant for water as he wanders through the brutal, harsh, and intense heat of a desert. This panting expresses the desire of the psalmist's heart in the midst of his circumstance. It is possible that at the writing of this psalm, The psalmist himself had seen a deer who was panting in distress but was not able to drink from the water because of how turbulent that it was, because of the violence that the water contained. And so there he sat in great despair. And perhaps even the psalmist is able to recognize with that intense desire for water, but in the psalmist's experience, it's an intense desire because his soul pants for God. Not his body, not his bank account, but the very depth of who he is, his soul. The soul encompasses all that a person has. It would be expressed this way in the words of the New Testament. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The psalmist has an intense desire for God's presence. Verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This verse helps us to understand the intensity of the psalmist's desire. He expresses, excuse me, he addresses God as God in verse 1, then as the living God here in verse 2, and he expresses his desire to appear before God, the NIV says, to meet with God. And there is this intense longing within the heart 
of the psalmist to be in God's presence, to commune with Him personally, to recognize His greatness and His sufficiency, and for the presence of God to provide the peace and the calm that He so desperately needs that for some reason He is not able to find in His present location. In Jewish culture, God was seen as the fountain of living water who could satisfy the spiritual thirst of the people. Just as the water brook could satisfy the intense thirst of a distressed deer, the Israelites understood that the presence of God was able to satisfy the deepest longing of their soul. Jeremiah 17.13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Psalm 36.8 They drink their fill of the abundance of Your house and You give them to drink of the river of Your delights. And so for the Jew who was able to enjoy the presence of God, His presence provided a spiritual satisfaction for all that their soul longed for, just as a cool drink of water would satisfy a deer in physical distress. Now for Israel, and most especially those who led in Israel's worship, the presence of God was experienced most directly in the temple, it was understood to be the symbolic dwelling place of God. All the way back in the formation of the nation of Israel, when God instructed them to build the tabernacle, and as He led them to the place where they would eventually settle, He would lead them in a cloud, in a, in a pillar of fire, in the very presence of God, in a thunderous shadow over top of the tabernacle, God's presence was known to be in the temple, and here He is far away, feeling separated and cut off, an intense longing for the presence of God, and not able to find that very thing that He needed so desperately. It is here in the temple, in their practice of worship, that they could experience the satisfying nature of God's presence. And so the psalmist is far from Jerusalem, and he felt very far from God. We all know what it's like to be homesick, don't we? Have you ever experienced it? You're someplace where you, you really would prefer not to be? Perhaps off to college? Perhaps your first job and you've moved far away from the only home you've ever known? And there is this intense desire to go back to that place of safety, of familiarity, of soothing comfort that can only be found in your home. That's what it was like for the psalmist. That's what it was like for the Jew who loved the Lord, who understood that He was their all-sufficient God. The temple and the city of Jerusalem was the place where they would find all that their soul desired. The intensity of his desire for God is expressed by this feeling of separation. As a result of this, he is in deep mourning. Verse 3a, My tears have been my food day and night. Rather than being filled with the things he ate and drank, 
He is instead filled day and night with the tears of sorrow. I don't know if you've ever been so distraught that you weren't capable of eating, that you weren't capable of taking anything into your body. The sorrow that you felt, the anguish that was so real, filled you to the full to where you couldn't physically consume anything at all. And this is what the psalmist experiences in his separation from God. He's feasting on his sorrow all day and all night. He's living with the sorrow of this feeling of separation, a feeling cut off from God, a feeling overwhelmed by the circumstance that he finds himself in. There have been times in my life where I wondered what the next day was going to bring. And I didn't look forward to it. Yesterday was horrible. Today feels even worse. And oh my goodness, what if tomorrow's even beyond that? It is so easy for us to feel overwhelmed by the experience that we cannot control that we wonder where God is. We wonder what God is doing. We wonder, what will it take for God to act on my behalf? But to make matters worse for the psalmist, he's being taunted. This taunting that he experiences is adding to the sorrow that he feels. Verse 3b, While they say to me all day long, Where is your God? They most likely refer to his enemies, whether these are his captors, whether these, whether these are the ones that are inflicting difficulty into his life, whether these are unbelieving bystanders who want to ridicule his faith and have no desire for God, but they want to see that they see the hardship and they only want to pile on and make it worse. I don't know if you've ever had people like that in your life when you're really up against it and your enemies see it and they just want to pile on adding insult to injury, pouring salt into the wound. They probably weren't atheists during this time. Most everybody believed in some form of divine being, although they may not have believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. So this isn't a question of God's existence. It is a question of God's presence. Where is your God, the one in whom you place your trust, the one by all accounts who appears to have abandoned you, where is this God that you claim to cling to? It is a rhetorical question that the psalmist is likely asking himself, God, where are you? In the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of the anguish, with all of the uncertainty, the psalmist is still able to remember He remembers the things that he used to experience so vividly that made all the difference in his life. We read in verse Remember it, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers the pilgrimages to the temple, the festive celebrations, the Passover. 
the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of First Fruits, God's triumphs in the history of salvation. He remembers the times of vibrant worship. He remembers the experience, the fullness of God's presence. He remembers celebrating with the multitudes of others of like-heartedness the greatness of God And there was great rejoicing. There was great enthusiasm. There was great thanksgiving being offered to God. He was swept up into the worship of God. But times have changed. In the midst of these intense feelings of separation and desperation, in the face of overwhelming circumstances, and in the taunting of his enemies, the psalmist battles against his circumstances And he battles against himself because in spite of his reality, number two in our outline, he still has hope. He has this intense desire, this intense desire for the presence of God, and he also possesses hope. This single verse, verse 5, articulates the battle that we fight during times of adversity. The flesh wants us to say, where are you, God? And yet the Spirit within us says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. This verse expresses our faithlessness. Why are we in despair? It points out to us how irrational we are When we are in distress, why is it that we are so disturbed? Because the solution is incredibly simple. Trust in God. Yeah, that's easy to say, isn't it? It's a very different thing to allow that trust in God to penetrate to the depth of our soul in such a way that we don't battle with the thoughts of where are you, God. We don't battle with the feelings of abandonment. We don't get overwhelmed by our circumstances, but instead instead, we simply trust in the sufficiency and the provision and in the timing of God. The psalmist says, I shall again praise Him, which is a confidence that one day he would return back to the temple, that he would enjoy the multitudes who were praising the Lord. And this is a reminder to us that our circumstances are temporary. While some circumstances last much longer than others, and some are significantly more intense than others, they are temporary. Even if they last the majority of our lives on this earth, they are temporary in the face of eternity. Does that make a difference? Can that provide us hope? Can it provide for us strength? Can it call us back to the anchor that we find in our relationship with God? Well, of course it can, because God is there. He's in the midst of our circumstance Do you see what he says here? He says, I shall praise Him for the help of His presence. The help of His presence can also be understood as the acts 
of His presence. Meaning, that in the midst of his despair, in the midst of feeling completely overwhelmed, the psalmist is expecting that God is going to deliver him. We see this expressed in Psalm 44.3. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence you favored them. The nation of Israel did not inhabit the promised land by their own might, by their own determination, but only because the arm of the Lord favored them. It was His presence that enabled them to be victorious and conquering the land of the Philistines. So God is in control. He is sovereign over our lives. Hear me, whether we see it or not. Let me repeat that. God is in control. He is sovereign over our lives, whether we see it or not. He is at work carrying out His plans and His purposes for our lives. But in the context of the psalm, and I believe for many times in our own experience, the hope is somewhat short-lived. I think it exposes how quickly and how easily and how constantly we are drawn into our sorrow when we're facing great adversity. Number three in our outline, we see his troubled heart. Always going to be a challenge to our faith when we are suffering. Always. When in difficulty there's going to be tension between what we believe about God and our present experience. There is always this tension between what we believe about God and what we experience in our present reality. That tension is like a rubber band. And the more intense the circumstance, the more tension there is in that rubber band. What do I believe, but what do I experience? I really have faith, yet I really don't believe. I really trust in God, but I don't see Him at work. God, where are You? What are You doing? Have You abandoned me? There is always going to be this battle between what we believe and what we experience when we're going through difficult times in our lives. This is the psalmist's battle, and this is our battle. And we're going to see this battle expressed in three ways in these remaining verses. The first battle that we see is hopelessness versus our enemy. Hopelessness battles against our memory. Let's read together verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, what? I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. There's no doubt about it. Many people experience a sense of hopelessness and difficulties. Would you acknowledge that? Would you agree with that? How am I going to make it another day? Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Oh my goodness, how is this ever going to change? How will I survive? How will this turn out? I can't see any possible way that God is going to provide And so we sink back down into despair. This sense of hopelessness and difficulty. Our hearts and minds are filled with the thoughts of why and what if and when will it ever end. Oh my gosh. 
When will it ever end? It's been weeks, God. I didn't expect more than days. It's been months, God. I didn't expect more than weeks. It's been years, God. I never expected more than months. When will this ever end? In the midst of this turmoil, there is a battle to remember the faithfulness of God. Can you look back in your life... Can you see the faithfulness of God at work in ways that you never expected, that you never thought possible, that you never imagined would come true? Let me share this. And I'm going to share this on behalf of Sue. Not long ago, Sue was transferring the location of her business, had this big building. It was the extent of all that could be done. And when it was all being realized, there was this realization that we have to furnish this building. How is that ever going to take place? There are multiple floors. There are dozens of spaces that have to be filled. And through the faithfulness of God, through the phone call of Mike, Mike says, hey, I'm at this place and they've got rooms and rooms of office furniture that they have nowhere to put. Can you use it? And she said, absolutely. He said to the woman, I have someone that can take it, but she can't use it for at least nine months. And she says, that's great. Our lease doesn't expire for nine months. So when you're ready, it'll be here. Come and get it. How, Sue, was your building going to be furnished? No way. No how. No money. Nothing there. And yet, the faithfulness of God intersected this circumstance, this hardship, this adversity, this impossibility in such a way that that should be a marker in Sue's life of the faithfulness of God. Do you have markers in your life like that? Can you look back and see, oh my gosh, I can't believe God did that for me. Yet in times of adversity, our impulse is to say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, when are you going to show up? Is God faithful? Is God always faithful? Is God ever unfaithful? No. You see, that's the battle. The battle is hopelessness in the midst of our despair, battling against the memory of the amazing faithfulness of God. Who wins the battle? We get to choose, don't we? We either wallow in the mud pit of our circumstance or we pull ourselves out of it claiming the continued faithfulness of God because we are His children and He loves us with an everlasting love and He is working for our good so that you and I can be conformed to the image of Christ. And oh, by the way, you and I don't get to decide how God is going to do that. I shared this last week in our Bible study time. This is what someone shared with me in the depth of my own circumstance and hardship. Here's what he said. He said this, God has plans. We have Him. I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's very, very probable that at some point in your life, it is God's design that we go through the ringer so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. We don't get to choose how God accomplishes His plans and and purposes in our lives, but we know that God is always faithful.
circumstances are powerful. They become a challenge to our faith in God. They test our endurance. They test our perseverance. They test our memory and the faithfulness of God. Hardship will expose how real the presence of God is to us. And the psalmist is battling his feelings of hopelessness with his memories of the faithfulness of God. Number two, the second battle that we fight is circumstances, excuse me, circumstance battles against God's goodness. Verse seven, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Rather than resting by a stream or water brook that is calming and good to drink from, the psalmist is surrounded by violent, turbulent water. He feels like he's at the bottom of the waterfall and it is just crashing down all around him. And the depth of the waterfall is calling out to the depth of the waterfall and the waves of God's hand are just pouring over top of him, and he feels like a man that is drowning in stormy waters. The psalmist is experiencing a hardship that is absolutely and completely enveloping his entire being. Yet in the depth of his soul, he knows the truth. Look at what it says in verse 8. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and a song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. There is the battle of our circumstance that is being waged against the truth of God's goodness. Do you see the battle? Do you see the resolve in His heart? The loving kindness of God, His goodness, His mercy... His loyalty of an unchanging love. Is God good? Is God merciful? Is God loyal to the promises that He's made to His children? Do our circumstances change these truths? No. You see, we fight against the circumstance based upon what we know to be true about God. This is the battle we face. People often question the goodness and the mercy of God when hardship or disaster strikes. I remember when 9-11 happened and all of the scoffers were saying, where is this God of love? Where is this God who is the God of our nation? Where is this God that these people claim to live under? Well, when you turn your back on God... Can you expect some kind of a disaster to come your way? Well, yeah, I think you absolutely can. But the reality of it is this. Disaster and hardship and circumstance never ever changes the truth about who He is, but it can affect our perspective of these truths if we are not anchored in the truth of God's Word. We forget that we live in a world that exists under the curse of sin, that we live in a world that is dominated by sinful men with sinful purposes. And sometimes God allows these realities to intersect our lives for reasons that we may never, ever know. But it doesn't change the truth about who God is. Never can it change 
who God is. These truths enable us to have a song in our hearts and the darkness of night or in the depths of the storm when it's at its very, very worst, we can still sing praise to God because He has not changed. These truths from the prayers that we pray and the, and the way that we submit ourselves to Him, trusting in His purposes and His plans, are what we must employ when we're battling against our circumstance because circumstance is going to battle against our understanding of God's goodness. The third battle that we fight, we're going to fight, excuse me, feelings battle against reality. Verse 9, I will say to God my rock, hear that, I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Do you see the oxymoron there, the paradox that exists? You are my rock, yet why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? You see, all that the psalmist knows to be true does not negate the battle of what he is feeling Feelings will battle against reality. He calls God his rock, and yet he feels forgotten. He feels abandoned. He's suffering oppression at the hands of sinful men who are the enemies of God. And while he claims that God is his rock, he feels this way. Verse 10, As a shattering of my bones... My, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, the pain and the punishment are very real at the hands of the enemies. The circumstance that he experiences is filled with intense sorrow and anguish. And he has naysayers who are continually questioning, questioning the presence of God. It says they revile Him. And it is hurting Him to His very core, like they are physically breaking His bones. Now the shattering of bones is figurative here. It's the feelings of abandonment intensified by the enemies. It is so real that it feels like His bones are being broken, that His bones are actually rotting away, he feels like he is dying even though he claims that God is his rock. In the, midst, in the midst of the intensity of his pain, he's brought back to reality with the same refrain, the same reflection, the same reality that we first saw in verse 5. Here's what it says in verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God... For I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. As real as the pain is, the psalmist is drawn back to what he knows is true, that he can hope in God and he can trust in God. He is determined to praise Him in spite of the circumstances that he faces. So the battle between what he feels and what he knows to be true is very, very real. These feelings are powerful, and apart from a continued determination to trust in God, He will give in 
to the feelings of despair. What do you believe to be true about God? How does what you feel change about the reality of who God is? Not a cotton-picking thing. And yet, so often, we find ourselves in this intensely difficult circumstance and our natural impulse is to say, why? Where are you? When will it end? We have to recognize this battle that exists for our allegiance to the God who has saved us by grace. Being conformed to the image of Christ is much like a glob of clay on a potter's wheel who with painstaking intentionality shapes that glob of clay into something that reflects the handiwork of the one who sculpts. What kind of handiwork does the master desire to create in you and I? Would you pray with me? Father, how we thank you for the intensity of the emotion that is expressed in the Psalms. And I know, Father, that there are periods in our lives when we can identify with that so well. And some here today are identifying with it even now. And some have been doing so for a very long time. God, I pray that you would use this Psalm, your word, our time of worship, to bring us back to the rock, to bring us back to the anchor that we would be strengthened by the might of your power to stand in the midst of great hardship, celebrating your presence. Finding sufficiency in what we know to be true about you giving thanks to you for your ability to work all things for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purposes so that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. Father, we need to be conformed. And I don't like that process, but I know it's for my good. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we go through hardship and difficulty that we will be squeezed and the trueness of our faith in you will come out. May you find within us a constant desire to praise you. Would you find within us a constant desire to be satisfied with what you provide and the constancy of your presence within us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.